Praise ye the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him for his mighty acts, praise him according to his excellent greatness. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord, praise ye the Lord. Bow our hearts and heads, a sign of preparation for worship. Let us pray. We gather this evening, God above, we gather because you have called us, we gather because we love you, and we love the fellowship of the saints, God Almighty, and we are thankful for your providence towards us and our ability, God, because of that, to meet and to meet in a comfortable place, Lord, to meet in a comfortable place, and back uh, virtually to normalcy from a year ago. We ask, Lord, that that would be retained, God, and we thank you in particular, Lord, for the rain that we've had all day. We need it out here in a semi-arid land, God. We need the water and the moisture for the land, for the animals, for ourselves, Lord. Thank you for the food and for the shelter that we have as well, God, and that we continue to have such things. Uh, for our body, Lord, for your church, Christians in particular here. And so, Lord, we pray also for the economy which we find ourselves in. We pray for a healthy economy, Lord, for the sake of your church, sake of the Christians, for Christians in particular, God, for all of us and our children, our children's children, Lord. And for our concern is indeed for the saving of the soul, Lord, uh, but also for the body that you are going to redeem at the resurrection, God, as you've given us the Deacons, Lord, to take care of these matters. And so, Lord, we as churches should have such prayers on our lips and our hearts, God, for economic health, for our families, Lord, uh, which often comes providentially through the larger economy and society in which we find ourselves in a very wicked society, to be sure, and also um, a number of wicked things being done in the economy, making money off of the slaughtering of children, God, even the selling of their parts, Lord. Astounding that I even say those words. It's also angering God, a righteous indignation. I pray that we have, Lord, that we would not become numb to such wickedness. It's uh, such a wicked economy that way, God. Help us, we pray, as churches, to preach the gospel, to stand firm, to help those in need, Lord. And again, uh, to be those who know the signs and the seasons and times and seasons which we find ourselves in, to save up money for a difficult day, a rainy day, Lord, for a difficult time, for our brothers and sisters who may need help in the future, God, if work becomes more scarce, especially if they are conservative Christians, God. And so as we as individuals, as families, and as churches, Lord, would prepare for the future as best we can so that we can be there for one another and the world may see that we do indeed take care of one another and love one another as you've called us in your word, as we found planted in our hearts. We ask, God, that you be with us for our work situation, whether we are employers or employees, whether we are the bosses or the workers, God, that we would work as unto you. We work well unto you, Lord, that we would work intelligently and understand our job uh, as best we can, God, and to be good workers that way, efficient workers, uh, productive workers, God, but also wise workers, Lord. Give us wisdom and understanding when to change jobs, uh, when to speak to our boss or our co-worker, God. Give us perseverance in that department, for we can be very good at our job, but maybe not so good with dealing with difficult people or people in general, Lord. Help us in that department as well, as best we can, Lord, to persevere, especially in those hard jobs and hard situations with hard uh, bosses and hard companies. And, Lord, uh, relatedly, we pray for our stewardship. That is, we are called to steward, to use a right to husband the resources that you blessed us with, God, that they are ultimately yours, and you have given them to us for a short time, Lord, that we may use them, redeem them a right, Lord, that is, Use them not in a slipshod manner, Lord, but in a proper manner to use our resources, God, our time, our money, talents for our family, uh, for our spouse, for our children, God, especially, and for our friends, for the church, Lord. 
put these things in proper priority, God. Establish uh, what is important in our lives, Lord, a proper prioritization of love and of ability and capacity, God, for one another. And do these things always as unto you, Lord. We ask God you be with us this evening. Help us draw us nigh unto you by your grace and your spirit, we pray. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Psalm 22. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime. You do not hear. And in the night season, and I and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. It will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Let us pray. With the psalm, God, we see an amazing amount of historical detail of prophecy, a type of Christ, his person and his work on earth, Lord, even down to the last detail. May it encourage us, God. Remind us again that Christ has suffered for us in David's life, at least part of his life, has shown that suffering ahead of time, Lord. To remind them and to encourage us after the fact that your word is true and that Christ indeed died and suffered for us and lives for us even to this day. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Psalm 22 is an amazing psalm. Why? Because 
It details the work of Christ so well, it could have been written after the closing of the New Testament era. But it was written almost 900 years before Christ came to earth. It's also amazing for its depth of passion and suffering. It describes with such pathos as to transport us to the night of Christ's suffering. And also amazes us for being so relatable. We read this and see ourselves in the trials and tribulations that we have as well. David wrote it about himself, yet it is about us, and more importantly, it is about Christ. So let us explore these themes and learn more about our Savior and of David and how his life reflected the Savior come. And so I have it divided into three parts. The first part of the sermon is David as a type of Christ, specifically the suffering David. And then I go through Psalm 22 from verses 1 to 21, pleas for the suffering, and then the latter part of the psalm respect to the praise of the deliverance of God, 21 to 31. David, a suffering type of Christ, type of Christ himself as king and as a man and as uh, the one of the Old Testament who himself was anointed. David had many hats. You have many hats. That's an old idiom we have in our culture, at least as I was growing up. And by hats, I mean different responsibilities, right? Right now, my hat is the hat of the pastor. And if uh, my daughter got out of line, I had to say something, I put on the hat of, my, of the father. Something else happened, I have the hat of, my, of being the son on my head, or the hat of a citizen, the police come in, you know, something like that. So we talk about hats, hats, and David had many hats, and we have many hats. Many responsibilities, many relationships to many people with many different responsibilities. We call them different hats, different duties, different jobs that we have. And David had the same kind of thing. Same thing in the Bible, the same for everyone, brothers and sisters. You're not unique. You may feel overwhelmed, but it's not the case. You have many hats. You have many responsibilities and many relationships with many people. And so the lessons that we learn from this in the Bible, in Psalm 22, for example, is that David was a man. David was a king. And David was a type. He had many hats or many responsibilities, often overlapping. David as a man, so from this we can learn from David ourselves as Christians, because David as a man is specifically David as a Christian man. David as a Christian man is a man we can emulate and learn from. We can learn from anyone in the Bible, because all of them, even the sinners, are human. Specifically, of course, the Christians are the believers and the Messiah to come of the Old Testament Jews. As you read in, I don't know, Hebrews 11, great chapter, the Hall of Faith. Even though they're kings, even though they're judges like Samson, but they also wear the other hat of being a believer. And we can see to the extent that they have those kind of responsibilities, those kind of faith, that kind of grace working in them, we too can read it and say, I can relate to Samson, I can relate to Deborah, I can relate to whomever it is. And same with David, and same with this psalm. And so it is therefore reasonable and understandable how you can read this psalm, which is clearly and highly Christological, as they say, about Christ, but also realize it's about us to some extent, that we can relate to it anyways. And so David, as a believer, is someone we can emulate, believe, and read about and be encouraged, and be warned even, 
Don't imitate David in his sins. Beware, his sins are common among us, for example. David as king is another hat he wore. Here, David is a little more unique, as I mentioned this morning, where we have 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. You read those books, they're properly written to a pastor. They're not written to you directly. And so the office of the king is about kings, somewhat directly related to leaders of society and more indirectly related to uh, you who are not a king or not a leader of society or of the church, right? You don't have those responsibilities. We don't have kings in America, but we do have leaders. We have presidents. We have judges. We have legislatures. We have sheriffs. We also have social leaders, people with influence and the like, millionaires. He was a rich man. Most kings were back then. And, of course, church officers can relate to David insofar as they, too, have authority and rule and responsibility towards large groups of people outside their family. So to that extent, we can relate to David as a king and learn from the Psalms, from the Old Testament. Again, Hebrews 11 tells us we can learn from them. Hebrews 11 doesn't talk about Christ. Christ is the object of faith. Yes, they believed in Christ as the Messiah to come, but it was all about what they believed. They believed, you can believe. Don't give up. They didn't give up. They should be your inspiration. That's what's going on there in Hebrews. And so this is also appropriate in the Bible and the Psalms. Uh, less so, of course, in Psalm 22, which is clearly, as we get there, about Christ and his work for us. But even then, you can see and relate to much of this, because David speaks it about himself as well as Christ. And then David as a type. Here he is very unique. None of us are types. <laughs> and if some guy claims to be a type of Christ, uh, flee that church. Don't try to reform it. <laughs> You're wasting your time. A type, of course, is uh, a formal and official setting aside uh, a person and his office to represent the person and work of Christ. And that is done by God. Only God, and it was done only in the Old Testament. We have types in the Old Testament, formally set out by God. In the case of David, in the case of his office in particular, especially the three offices, right? Prophet, priest, and king. The priests were types of Christ and his priestly function for us. Prophets as well, with Christ being prophetic voice in the wilderness. And of course, the kingship of David, and not only David, but the other kings is a type of Christ and his kingship and his rule over us. That is a picture, a living picture of what the Messiah is going to do, is going to do and was going to do the past to the future and the present as well. His rule over God's people, David's rule over God's people, reflects Christ's rule over God's people. His fighting the wars of Canaan, picture of Christ fighting the wars for his people, etc., etc. just goes on and on that way. And what we can learn, of course, the symbolism, the living symbolism of David and others, the types, the priests, is excluding the sin part, right? You know, he excise out the sinful part. It's the official function of the office that we are looking at that is a type, that is a picture, a living picture to teach us who Christ is and what he is going to do for us. And that's what we see here as well. Christ, uh, excuse me, David, type of Christ, David suffering, therefore a type of Christ suffering, my point. And so we have two themes here, two broad divisions 
of the chapter, verses 1 to 21, his suffering, or David's suffering, and therefore a type or a picture of the coming Messiah and his suffering, and then the faith and encouragement of God, the rejoicing of the latter part of the deliverance given by him. David struggles as a king, of course, from enemies from without, enemies from within, even the closest friends of his who betrayed him. And anyone in leadership roles can recognize and reflect that and say, yes, sometimes I felt like David here who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because David does have common sanctification, common issues that we have today, brothers and sisters. Yes, the details change. We don't have kings anymore. You don't have someone with a sword coming after you, but you have people coming after you perhaps in other ways, economically and legally, as they are coming after churches, as we see their Christian businesses, for example, even here in Denver. So it's less serious that way, sure. They're not dying. That's a great thing. There's no threat of death. But it's still serious enough that you feel like David, and you read this psalm, you say, this feels like me. And you can see why, because God has made sanctification common all ages that way. And so we can read these and say, this is me. We can have this identification. That's one of the, <clears throat> the perennial attractions of the Psalms. They hit all kinds of human activities and emotions and sanctifications and issues, psychologically especially. And so they, even though David as a king has these struggles and difficulties, and we as leaders may have similar things, but even as a king, he's still a human and a believer, and they too struggle, even if he wasn't a king. And also he has, of course, a faith, trusting in the Lord God Almighty. We'll see that as we go through these verses here. Pleas of suffering, verses 1 to 21, second point. David is a type. Now we see the particulars of the type of Christ uh, through David. That is, the suffering he has reflects and even prophesied. This is one thing I left out of the definition explicitly. Right, Officially and formally, God says, this is a type. I'm setting him aside to teach you what Christ is going to do in his office, but also as a prophecy to point to what Christ is going to do in time and space and history right, for his people, not just morally, but the activities on earth. Forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We all know that passage. We know this psalm because we know Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthanan. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right there, Psalm 22. Ah, this is the psalm about Christ. <laughs> you weren't clear before, now you know. David said it. David believed it. Many think this psalm was written when Saul was chasing him. Right? The king of Israel trying to kill the next king of Israel. He gets no help and support amongst all the Israelites. He's hiding in caves like an animal. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? I feel forsaken. I feel left out and alone. I, I feel defenseless. I'm going to be slaughtered soon. I'm abandoned. Everywhere I go, I'm chased by a larger army. I'm hated by my own people. At least they're not interested in lifting a finger to help me. We don't have that. We don't have what Christ has, but we do have struggles with sin. And so this text resonates with us that way at times. But it should always point us back to Christ again. That we shouldn't sit there wallowing in feeling left alone and isolated. But rather, remember again Christ and what he went through. For our sins, brothers and sisters, he was forsaken. Why have you 
forsaken me, he cries out. This is more of a heartfelt rhetoric of, of David. He feels this way. His, his faith is very weak at the time. He knows ultimately that God has not left him. He says, but you are holy, verse 3, enthroned, and our fathers trusted in you. He even says, I trust in you. I cry out to you. That's why. I feel this way. David felt this forsaken, and Christ felt a forsaken, a forsakenness that David had only but an echo of. For Christ was forsaken, although not physically, for God is everywhere. Hell is not the absence of the presence of God. Hell is the absence of the gracious presence of God, the wrathful presence of God, because God is everywhere. So it was not physical, uh, nor morally, insofar as Christ himself did not sin. He personally was righteous. He didn't give in to the temptation of Satan. But rather legally and forensically, Christ took our sins upon him. God declared him to be punished in our stead. Declared us righteous. The great exchange is what Luther called it. The great divine exchange where he took our sins and we took his righteousness. Not personally, right? We still struggle with that sanctification. This is justification with respect to us. It's forensic with respect to Christ. That he who knew no sin took sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Where he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was forsaken in that sense for us. Now, he was also forsaken personally on earth when his disciples left him, when his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, left him. And worse, Peter denied him three times and even cursed. That's being forsaken. David didn't have that. Still had a small, merry band of warriors with him. Maybe not so merry. This is Christ. He is, God is speaking through David here as the type formally set apart for us to learn this lesson. Trusting the Lord, verses 3 through 5 and 9 through 10. So I, I lump those together. We go verses 1 to 2 here. He cries out before God. He feels alone and isolated. And we know ultimately Christ took this upon him. Back to sin. Law courts of God above. The trusting here, verses 3 through 5, but you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. You, Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Why is he saying this? But he's convincing himself. We do this and this is important to do. History is helpful. When we go over the history of the Old Testament and go over 1 Samuel on Wednesday night, I've not gone through that part of the Bible yet. I, know, I think Leonard went through Samuel a long time ago. To recount God's wonderful and marvelous works. To strengthen our weak faith. So he's strengthening his weak faith. Our forefathers believed in you. I know it's perhaps easy for us to remember, oh, they were a bunch of complainers in the desert. What was their problem? And you wonder, maybe 99% of them are unbelievers. You don't really actually see that as much as you may think when you realize in Hebrews mentions there are all these other believers not listed here. And then here he just says, across the board, our fathers trusted in you. By implication, I, I want to trust in you. I, I do trust in you. I mean, he does pray before God. Prayer itself is an implicit expression of faith and trust. And then explicitly he says in verse 9 through 10, But you are he who took me out of the womb from his birth, 
You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Now it's explicit. He acknowledges he's always believed. And we've had people like that in the church believe. Well, they remember. Praise be to God. David was one of those. You can believe and still struggle like David, right? Don't let the devil tell you otherwise. The sufferings, verses 6 to 21. Now I'm going more uh, through the text here, the verses. Mocking, verses 6 through 8. But I'm a worm and no man, and reproach of men, and despised by the people. He's not saying I am literally a worm. Of course, it's not Christ saying I am literally a worm. He was never a worm that way. Inferior, he was divine. And as a man, he was perfect and morally upright. But that, that's what people considered him. He was a reproach of men. They considered him a worm. You're less than dirt. They looked down upon him and spat on him. That is Jesus. Of course, they looked down upon David as well for a while. We know now it goes right into Jesus and what he has done for us. And he suffered for us. All those see me, ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. Verses 8. And since he delights in him. Matthew 27, 39. Right? When I was going through this, looking up the cross-references, and I realized I had merged and melded this psalm so well with the life of Christ that I thought that was quoted, and it's not. Right? It's not quoted by Matthew. What you have in Matthew, however, is the same sentiment. Right? And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. You are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Right? They are mocking him. They ridicule me. They shoot out the lips saying, He trusted the Lord. Let him rescue him. Since he delights in him, let him be saved. Where's your God now? Where's your power now? Who do you think you are now? Ridiculed and mocked. Why? Because they hated Christ. They hated their Savior. They're supposed to be their Savior. Right? Of the Jews. But more deeply and more importantly, brothers and sisters... He did this for us and for you. Christ took the mocking of this world, of his own people, for our sins. Likewise, the chief priests also, uh, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he says, I am the son of God. Pretty close to the language of Psalm 22. He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. And this is from the mouth of the haters. It's a picture of being overwhelmed, verses 11 through 18. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There's no help. Many bulls have surrounded me. They gape at me like lions. I am poured out like water. My strength is dried up. My tongue clings to my jaws, verse 15. The dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. I'm outnumbered. I'm surrounded. Of course, David oftentimes was surrounded during warfare and fights, and of course by Saul, where he was almost captured by Saul in the suspense of the, of the cave, where he snuck up to his cloak and cut off a piece of it, as you remember. He was that close. <clears throat> and of course as Christians, although not kings, not being 
sent to the slaughter like that and surrounded. You feel that way more and more, I suppose, in this society where there are more and more unbelievers. The unbelievers and the neighbors are, are so much further from Christianity than they were in the 70s, which probably felt pretty far for some of you guys. Worse now. So we are surrounded that way. It's more of a passive-aggressive hatred. I'm glad I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm not like looking for active hatred or anything like that. But it's similar that way, and we feel overwhelmed. But we must remember again, Christ was surrounded as well. And as a man, he was outnumbered. But of course, as God, he was never outnumbered. My strength is dried up like the pot sheared, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, which seems to be a picture of perhaps drying out there. And my tongue clings to my jaws, and dust of the death. And of course, and Jesus said, I thirst on the cross. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. Verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet, and I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast for lots. You know that text, right? Matthew 27, again, verse 35. They crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, my clothing they cast lots. It's that specific, this psalm, as a prophecy of Jesus Christ. We have large swaths of the Bible, old parchments and the like, and we know they're dated very, very old. This is before Christ. It could have been written after Christ. So detailed. It's incredible. Verses 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, and the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Christ in the garden, suffering in isolation, as I reminded you again, and they left him. He was alone. God indeed did answer him. Hebrews 5.7 summarizes the suffering of Psalm 22 and the life of Christ Jesus for us. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Christ did pray, prayed so intensely that blood came out, like blood upon his forehead. Lord, do not be far from me. Deliver me from the sword. Save me from the lion's mouth. And you have answered me. God did answer Jesus Christ. For he was victorious over death and sin. And rose again from the dead, brothers and sisters, for our justification and salvation. And sits on the right hand of God the Father right now. He was victorious. So there is praise of deliverance. Verses 21 and following. God has triumphed through Christ Jesus. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Remember that? That's in Hebrews 2.12. A direct quote. That's how often the psalm is quoted in the New Testament or referenced or alluded to. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Gentile worship. He rules over us, brothers and sisters, to this day. We are fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm 22. Isn't that amazing? I like to remind myself that, as you know, I grew up charismatic, always wondering about the end times and the prophecies. I'm living in prophecies now, prophetic times now, insofar as we have fulfilled. This is being fulfilled now, every time a Gentile is saved. I was a Gentile. I am a Gentile. 
God has saved me and saved you. God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is across all the nations of the world. We see it more and more when Christ comes back. We'll see it thoroughly. And it's a generational victory. Verse 30, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. That's what we do. I preach it this evening to the next generation, younger people here, and you must give it to your children and they to their children in fulfillment of this psalm. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this, to a new generation, to a people who have not yet been born but will be born. And that was the future beyond David to the here and now. And so we move in this psalm here, knowing it's written by David about the struggles he had, probably of Saul chasing him down. Struggles of a king, yes, struggles of a believer like us. And knowing that it was ultimately used to picture in graphic detail Christ's suffering for us, but also his victory, brother. The victory that we have through Christ Jesus, our Lord. David was a type of Christ, a living picture to show us a living Savior. Let us learn from David to bring our pleas and concerns to God, but let us look to Jesus for our deliverance from sin and misery. Let us pray. We thank you for these words. We thank you for the psalm, God, with much wonderful truth in it. Sad truth, to be sure, as we read this, our hearts lurch within our breasts, Lord, to know what you went through, our Savior, but to know that you did it for us because you love us that you've given us deliverance, God. You have answered our prayers because you've answered the prayers of our Savior who prayed for us. And as we have prayers in accordance to that, it's so, so it is the same prayer. In your name alone we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.